It's good to be with you all as you remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Open your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 2. And those of you that know me know I am an expositional preacher. I prefer expository over topical or sermon series. And Brother Steve, you left your crayon. But I felt uh, led of the Lord and several questions uh, from various different folks have come uh, that lets me know that maybe the Lord is wanting me to go down this road. So last week we began by looking at the validity of the Bible uh, by examining the Old Testament canon. And uh, this week we're going to take a look at the New Testament canon. And I've only got about... um, Six hours worth of material to cover today, <laughs> but I, I'll do the best that I can to condense it for you in the time allotted. Let's go to Ephesians chapter number 2 and start reading with me, if you would, there in verse number 19, if you'll follow along. It says, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom also ye are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. I want you to look at verse 20, and that's what we're going to use as our springboard this morning. It says, And are built upon the foundation... Of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Father, as we come to your word, I pray, Father, that your word is what would remain preeminent. Father, that your word would be what is seen today as high and lifted up. Not man's opinions, not man's thoughts. Father, your word, because it reveals to us us Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, we want to uh, beg of you, Father, something that is necessary this morning. And Father, that's that you would remove any distraction. Father, anything that would cause my mind or the mind of uh, the hearers, Father, to wonder, I pray, Lord, that you would take that from this place. Father, that you would silence all disturbances, Lord, for just this moment as we focus on you. Prevent us from being distracted. Father, prevent us from being a distraction. Because, Lord, we want to focus solely on thee. We ask these things in your son's name, believing, because we're asking them for his sake. Now, Father, hide me behind your word. And, Father, I plead the blood of Jesus. Asking, Lord, that you would allow yourself to be raised high and lifted up in our sight today. And the Father, as we walk away from here, we would say it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to take a look. Why Believe the Bible? This is part two in our mini-series. And... uh, 
Uh, I want to define just a few words before we go any further because I think it's important for us to understand what we're talking about. Now, you've heard me use the term canon. Now, this is canon with one end, not two ends. This one uh, is uh, more of a criteria by which something is judged or determined to be accepted as genuine. Two ends would go boom. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the canon of Scripture, not the canon uh, of a military uh, situation. Uh, another word that you're going to hear today is Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Gnostic is uh, from the Greek word gnosis, uh, and it is basically a uh, uh, knowledge, is what you, what you get from gnosis, knowledge. The Gnostic form is a secret knowledge that not everyone was privy to, only a certain uh, select few people were privy to this knowledge, and you're going to uh, uh, see some of this. Uh, as we get into it, uh, if you want to put something beside your notes as you're taking notes, perhaps, and you're writing down Gnostic, Gnostic, what they're saying is that what you have before you is not the truth. Only certain people, the writers of said Gnostic Gospels, uh, they knew what no one else knew, and now they're giving to you that secret information as well. And so we, we, we want to understand that this Gnostic is not, um, not what we claim uh, uh, to believe. So I'll get into explaining a little bit of that a little bit later here, a little bit more. Uh, manuscript, you'll hear the term manuscript. Uh, manuscript is basically uh, a copy of the original. And uh, uh, the, when you hear the term such as we have certain amounts of manuscripts, we're not claiming that we have the autograph. The autograph would be the original document. So when Paul sat down and penned his words to the Galatians, the autograph would be the exact piece of parchment that he was using at that time. We have uh, manuscripts, which would be copies of the original. And so uh, I, I wanted to try to make sure that you have a, a little bit of an understanding as to what's going on in this uh, as we get to moving along here. And uh, I'm going to do the best that I can to get as much information to you uh, in a small amount of time, but you can look in your bulletin. We will be having an, ap an apologetic conference coming up and uh, uh, be, uh, be, uh, be looking forward to being there if you want more information than what I'm able to give today. Uh, this week, we're going to look at the New Testament and uh, uh, see if we can trust that we have the right books. We have 27 books in our New Testament. We have, uh, uh, we have them that way for very good reason. Uh, there are those today that level some criticism against the Bible of today because uh, of writings referred to, other writings referred to as Gospels. And they say that we do not have all the Gospels uh, in our Bible. We don't have all the books that should be there. And they claim that we cannot know for certain that the Christianity that is uh, taught today is the actual teachings of Jesus and the apostles. If you'll take note uh, there in verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 2, I, I wanted to reference this passage for a very specific reason. He says, and are built upon uh, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, we want to understand that Christianity, true Christianity, honest biblical Christianity, uh, has Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of everything that we teach and believe. 
And, and the apostles, the writings of the apostles and the prophets all point to Jesus Christ. And so as we understand uh, what it is that the apostles' doctrine teaches, and you'll find that in several different places through the New Testament, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. You'll find that uh, what it was was you had the apostles teaching to the rest of the people what Jesus himself taught to them. And so anything that tries to put a spotlight on something other than the person of Jesus Christ needs to be suspect right at the beginning. Now, I made a statement last week, and I would uh, like to reiterate that statement, uh, that many times the folks that uh, that want to uh, try to disprove Scripture or try to disprove uh, our faith uh, by bringing up certain uh, Gnostic Gospels or what have you, uh, they'll, they'll say things, well, you can't trust the Bible that you have because you have all these other books that are not included in your New Testament. And so how can you really know? And the first question that I like to ask is, have you read them? And that usually sums it up pretty quickly because we don't necessarily want to uh, read. We just want to take someone like Bart Ehrman's word for it. And when Bart Ehrman says that there's this many other Gospels that should be in there, no, let's stop for a minute. Realize that the Bible itself teaches us to examine whether or not we have the right thing. And so any, any born-again believer, any, any uh, true disciple of Jesus Christ is going to want to examine what is before them. Is this truly God's word or not? And so I hope to present several, uh, several different defenses, mainly three today. Uh, support of the early church writers, the support of manuscript evidence, uh, the support from scriptural consensus. And so those three supports... Uh, I want to try to give to you as best I can the allotted time. The apostles here, uh, however, I want you to take a look. You're in Ephesians. Go back just one more book to the book of Galatians. And I want you to see where the apostles actually limited themselves and really kind of put themselves between a rock and a hard place uh, as far as the scriptures were concerned. Look at Galatians chapter number 1. Now, Paul is writing to the people in Galatia uh, because there were uh, Judaizers. There were people coming in trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ and trying to give another gospel, trying to give another message. And, and he said, no, 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 stop right there. He says, let me give it to you very plainly. I'm going to give you the gospel. And look what he says with me here in verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. And this is a pretty strong statement that the Apostle Paul is making, and it's actually placing him in a very precarious position because if you think about it, what would happen if later down the road the Apostle Paul decided, you know what, I really don't like this part over here. I really don't like the thought uh, where Jesus, time and time again, and we talked about this this morning in our school of Tyrannus, that when, when Jesus compelled people to come to know him as their personal Savior, he said, follow me. It'd be a whole lot easier if I didn't have to follow Jesus and still get to go to heaven. 
And so when Paul decides later on, maybe Paul, uh, he is just making things up and he is just going down the road of, of trying to start a new religion or trying to start a new faith system. And maybe he would desire, I want things to be just a little bit different. And well, oh, well, I kind of trapped myself because I said to the Galatians, don't let anybody change the gospel. He said it also to the Thessalonians, if you were to look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He, he told them, he says, this is, this is what we want to focus. I don't want you to just take my word for it. Flip over just a few pages uh, uh, to your right there, and you'll find uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians and then 2 Thessalonians. Look what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letters as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. So apparently in the early church days, there were people writing, pretending to be Peter, pretending to be Paul. Now here's the interesting thing about those type of writings. Paul, Peter, Andrew, James, John, guess what? They were still around. As well as the over 500 people who witnessed Christ ascend into heaven. And so if someone was coming out and saying, no, 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 Jesus never did this, or, or Jesus never did that, or you have to do this in order to be saved, there were still people around. Paul's reminding them, hey, that's not legitimate. So don't be shaken. So we want to look at this, the apostles really limiting themselves. And so logically speaking, uh, and, and I was talking a little bit last week about logic, and I'm, I'm a very logical type of a person. If, if God's word says X, then it's X. It doesn't mean Y, Z, and Omega, okay? So let's just stay with what it is. Logically, if one teaching says X and another teaching says Y, both cannot be true. They can't. And so this deals with truth claims, and so two opposing statements cannot both be true. Now, if you want a, uh, a little bit more information as far as that's concerned, let's, let's go down the road of absolutes because you're going to hear people, especially in today's uh, day and time, they say things such as, there are no absolutes, everything is relative. There's no such thing as an absolute truth. Have you ever heard someone say that there's no such thing as an absolute truth? If you've heard that statement, please raise your hand. Okay, a few of us have heard that statement. Let me, you know that statement is an absolute statement, and so for me to say there are no such things as an absolute truth, that is me making an absolute truth claim. And so it falls apart in the very statement itself. There are absolutes. Truth is an absolute. And you can't, I can't tell my children that the sky is uh, cloudy, but then tell the other kid the sky is not cloudy. Now you can say, well, maybe you're talking about Arizona sky and you're talking about Florida sky. Come on. Let's, just, let's, let's be legitimate about some things for a minute. Either it's true or it's not. Let's just stay there. And so basing some, some of this on that, let's begin by looking at the early writings of those who would be considered church authorities. The early church here, now the assumption is that no one can really know uh, what the apostles said. But I, I, I beg to differ. 
You have on the screen there three different names, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Irenaeus, actually uh, uh, Irenaeus. Uh, and actually you've got John, uh, Justin Martyr in there as well. Uh, these were actually disciples of the disciples. Now what's interesting is we do have fragments of some of the things that they have said. Justin Martyr didn't write a lot, and what he did write, most of it uh, has, uh, is, in, is fragment, uh, fragmented at best. But we can find from him quoting uh, all four of the Gospels of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Ignatius, uh, a, a first century, um, uh, uh, one of the first century theologians, one of the first century disciples, one of the early uh, 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 church fathers, he went from the first century right into the uh, second century. He, he as well as uh, uh, Polycarp, were both discipled by the disciples themselves. Many believe Ignatius was a disciple uh, of Peter himself and possibly even John as well, which if you put him uh, in Antioch, you've also got uh, Paul probably influencing him some. And so some of his writings, we want to look at those as well as some of the uh, writings of Polycarp, who was a disciple directly from John the Beloved. You find uh, people such in uh, church history such as Irenaeus and Justin Martyr who were discipled by Polycarp. Now you're, you're, you may be standing, sitting there wondering, well, why does this matter? Who in the world is Irenaeus? Who in the world is Ignatius? And who is Polycarp? You know, what kind of fish name is that? Well, we want to understand why this makes a, a difference. As I look at the evidence of the early church, As I understand them, let me give you just a few statements made by these. Ignatius, uh, writing during the first century and then into the second century, uh, he wrote to the Ephesians, to the Magnesians, to the Trillians, to the Romans, to the Philadelphians, to the Smyrnans, and a letter to Polycarp he quoted from several of the books of the canon that we have in our 27 uh, uh, books of the New Testament. He quoted from the Gospel of Matthew, from the Gospel of Luke, from the book of Acts, from Romans, from 1 Corinthians, from Ephesians, from Colossians, as well as 1 Thessalonians. Then you have Polycarp. Polycarp was a 1st century disciple of John, 2nd century, uh, into the 2nd century as well. Uh, He was uh, over the church in Smyrna. Uh, He wrote a letter to the Philadelphians. Uh, or to the Philippians, I'm sorry. He wrote a letter to the Philippians, which quoted from a good portion of the canon. He quoted from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, He quoted uh, from Acts, both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, from Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, from 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, from Hebrews, from 1st Peter, and 1st and 3rd John. I'm sorry, 2nd John. Irenaeus... This student of Polycarp, he quoted from, he was a second century uh, uh, disciple, and he quoted um, uh, as being a, a disciple of Polycarp in his writings. One, now, Irenaeus is where you really start to pick up on some of the writings. And you can pick up some of his a little bit more complete. Uh, his uh, book, An Adversus of Heresies, or Against Heresies, or The Demonstration of Apostolic Teaching. For example, in Adversus of Heresies, he quotes from all 27 books of the New Testament except Philemon, 2 Peter, 3 John, and Jude. And so, yes, Bart Ehrman, we have proof 
that the books we have in this New Testament are legitimate. But I don't want to just stop there. Irenaeus of Lyons considered the gospel of truth as well as the gospel of Judas heresy. Now, people are going to say, oh, the gospel of truth, gospel of Judas. Judas was dead. He didn't write. Okay. We need to understand what's going on. In the, uh, uh, in the early days of the church, there were many uh, who would uh, try to present themselves as one of the disciples and start to write some of these heretical, also known as Gnostic Gospels. Now, what's interesting is you really don't find much as far as these Gnostic Gospels are concerned until the mid to late 2nd century. And so it's not really, you, you find allusions to them, uh, but it wasn't until, who, who knows Muhammad Ali? Not the boxer. Okay, there was a young man by the name of Muhammad Ali, and uh, not, not the boxer, different Muhammad, not Cassius Clay. Uh, but uh, he, he steps out, and him and his brother were playing around, and they were uh, going into this cave, and they thought, oh, my goodness, our prayers have been answered. We are going to be rich because they found this urn in this little town known as Nag Hammadi. And in this little urn that they had found in, the, in this place called Nag Hammadi, they located 52 parchments, 52 manuscripts of what is referred to today as the Nag Hammadi or the Gnostic Gospels. He was depressed. I thought I was going to be a millionaire. All that's in here is some books. Little did he know what he had stumbled upon would open up Pandora's box for people criticizing what we come to know today as the New Testament. Now, I want you to understand that 52, that number 52 is important. We don't have thousands. We don't have hundreds. We have very few partial copies of the Gnostic Gospels. Now, this is important for us to understand because it, it, it brings me uh, to my next point, and I'm trying to do the best that I can to give this to you as, uh, as, as best that I can here. Remembering Irenaeus being a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Beloved, do you think Irenaeus would have had good reason to know the true story? Logically speaking, would you think that Polycarp, as he's reading perhaps the gospel of truth, and he says to his teacher, John, I'm reading this book, and man, this... Is this legitimate? And John says, <laughs> no. He's going straight to the source. And so I think we can trust what some of these early church uh, teachers have to say. Interestingly, very little is rejected. But it wasn't until Eusebius comes along. Eusebius was the first historian of the church, and he's working during that, that third and fourth century. Uh, he worked to compile a history of the early days of the church leaders. Now, why is it important that we understand this? I want you to, because we're going to move on to the next portion of this in the, uh, the evidences of the manuscripts, 
And it's important for us to understand that within the first few hundred years of the church, we have a lot of evidence of what was truly said. And understand this. Within the first days of church history, we have people testifying of the truth. You don't hear Ignatius. You don't hear Polycarp referencing the Gospel of Thomas. You don't hear him, them referencing in any of their writings the Gospel of Mary. You don't hear them in referencing in any of their writings uh, the, uh, the infancy Gospel of Thomas. And, and they are two separates. You don't find them because they weren't there. Eusebius began to record the history uh, of, the, uh, of the church. Now, many have proposed these early dates for these Gnostic uh, texts. However, most, uh, most scholars do not uh, claim that they did not surface till the mid-2nd century. For example, the Gospel of Truth uh, was alluded to around the uh, early 100s. Uh, Irenaeus rejected it and said it's heresy. Uh, then you have this, uh, the preaching of Peter, which was surfacing around 140-ish. Uh, you have what's referred to as the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, now, the Gospel of Thomas is sort of the poster child for Gnostic Gospels. It is sort of the Superman for the Gnostic Gospels. And everybody wants to go back to the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, Origen rejects it in the mid-3rd century. And that was the first real uh, opportunity uh, for any of these guys to speak of it, let alone reference it. Origen references it in the mid-third century as being heretical. Now, there's little, if any, question of the validity of the majority of the canon. Most questions are actually understood when taking the regions. For example, they didn't have phone, email. They didn't even have snail mail back then. You wanted to get a letter to someone, you wrote it, you handed it to someone who took off, and they delivered it. So a lot of these uh, uh, letters that were, um, they, they didn't reject them, they just, uh, they said, well, I don't know. And actually, I had a chart, and I thought about handing it out, but I, I wanted to tweak it just a little bit more, where you look at all the early church fathers, the first 400 years of the church, the, uh, uh, the, uh, all the way leading up to the Jerome's Latin Vulgate, and Without question, you can take the two charts, the Gnostic Gospels and the 27 that we have in the canon, and you can look at all the check marks yourself, and you can see, whoa, no, not much question over here, and very little credence given over here. Most of them are X's. Nope, we don't want it. And so you come for the, uh, there's my shameless plug for the uh, upcoming uh, apologetics weekend. But many of the letters were sent to one direction. By the time you make it to the 3rd century, uh, you had people who uh, maybe in the West, one letter was written to these people in the West, and they dispersed it further West. But these people over here in the East, they said, no, we don't know if that's legitimate or not. We're having a hard time because we've never seen it. But then when they come over and they start to compare notes with the people in the West, they go, oh, okay, it is legit. So by the 3rd uh, uh, and 4th century, questions are cleared up. The book of Hebrews, for example, had an, uh, an anonymous author but it was sound in agreement with the rest of it, and so therefore it was accepted. Now, 
I want to look quickly at the evidence of manuscripts and let it speak for itself. Most books of antiquity have in the area of uh, uh, seven to ten copies that have been found. Most, uh, most antiquitous writings uh, fall into this category. For example, uh, Julius Caesar's famous writing, The Gaelic Wars, uh, only a few dozen copies. Now, The Gaelic Wars was written approximately a thousand years before any of these copies surfaced. That's a big gap. Are we sure of what Julius Caesar wrote? Another one is Aristotle's The uh, the Poetics. There are less than 10 manuscripts, and that was translated approximately 1,400 years after its original. And so the copies are 1,400 years late. Uh, Socrates and every uh, philosophy teacher loves going back to Socrates. We have zero manuscripts. The only way we know what he has said is because of what his student, uh, later Plato, uh, would write. He said Socrates said this, and so we're just supposed to take his word for it. Let me give you just a few more. Uh, You have them on your screen there. Uh, Demosthenes has around 200 manuscripts, and they weren't uh, around until 1,400 years uh, after the original. Homer's Iliad is the closest thing that we have today as a large amount. Homer's Iliad has has 643 copies, and there's a 500-year gap between when it was supposed to have been written and the copies that we have. That's a large gap, folks. But now let's let the Word of God's manuscripts do a little bit of speaking. Go ahead and bring them up. I get excited about that. I know I'm a geek. Within the early life of the church, there were collected around 5,700 manuscripts in Greek. Now some will say, well, that's not the number I heard. I heard 6,000. Somebody said, I heard 58. I heard 54. The reason for that is because of those manuscripts, sometimes we find that what we thought, uh, we, I'm not part of the team, what they thought was originally one document actually turned out to be two separate manuscripts, so the number climbs by one. Other documents, they'll say, well, we thought these were two, and we find out that they're actually one. So the closest number that we have right now is around 5,700 manuscripts. Homer's Iliad, 643 is the closest thing. But understand, these manuscripts were within the first couple hundred years. One is actually dated back to the first century. P52, you'll find that one if you did did a little bit of research there. The early church did not stop at Greek, however. During the first few centuries, they translated over 10,000 manuscripts into Old Latin. And so we have 10,000 Latin copies of the Greek. And not only that, but we have over 9,000 copied uh, in Coptic, Old Latin, Syriac, uh, Ethiopic, Armenian, and uh, and, and a few other languages as well. There are over 25,000 copies within the first few hundred years of the church. No gap. Now, someone may say, well, that's great that you have that many copies, but uh, are, they, are they very accurate? Well, 
Let me give you a couple of examples as far as accuracy is concerned. The Hindu Mahabharata was copied with a 90% accuracy rate. The Homer's Iliad had a 500-year gap, and yet it was copied with a 95% accuracy rate. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Someone may ask, what does that necessarily mean to me? Well, the accuracy rate would be if I was to take, if I had 100 copies, 100 documents in front of me, and they were all um, the, the book of Philemon. Okay, the letter to Philemon from the Apostle Paul. I have a hundred of them, and I, I compare this one to 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 this one. And just how much do they agree with one another? The accuracy rate of the Iliad is 95%. Now, let's see here. Within the early church life, uh, did it, did it, lost myself there. Bart Ehrman attacks that the Bible claims that there are around 400,000 errors. Now, I want you to understand the 400,000 errors. Bart Ehrman, Ehrman in his book saying 400,000 errors, if you were to take 100 manuscripts and all 100, let's do 1,000 because it's a more legitimate number. If you take 1,000 of the 5,700 or actually jump into the Latin and the Coptic and et cetera, if you took 1,000 of those manuscripts and you examined them and all 1,000 of them misspelled the word doulos the same way, then he counts that as 1,000 errors. Not one, 1,000. Now, most, of, most people agree that the majority, and even Ehrman himself, if you were to read some of his writings, even he himself admits that the majority of these are spelling errors, or uh, uh, what's known as a movable new. The movable new would be uh, equivalent like in our day we have a silent E. Did you know you can spell potato with an E at the end of it or without? Thank you, Dan Quayle. P-O-T-A-T-O-E. And so they would say that since those don't agree, that's a variant. Seriously? It's still potato. Potato's potato. Okay? And so when you remove those, even Ehrman himself says, not any of the variants that are found in the Greek manuscripts actually change the general message of the New Testament. He himself, one of the biggest skeptics of the validity of Scripture. Most scholars agree that the accuracy between the texts agree over 99%. So the question is, do we know what was really written? Yeah. Do we have the autographs? No. But we can know within 99% accuracy and actually... Uh, one, uh, one scholar believes that it's, the number is actually closer to 99.7% accurate. So we're dealing with three-tenths of an accuracy. All right. If the Hindu Mahabharata was uh, copied with over uh, 90% and no one wants to challenge Homer's Iliad, which was copied with 95%, the Bible being copied with 99% accuracy, if we throw the Bible out because we say that it's, it, it wasn't, you know, you have too many variants, you have to throw away every ancient writing we have. 
Because the New Testament is the only one that has that high of an accuracy rate. Nothing else comes close. Why does it matter? Why does it matter, someone may say. Well, let's, let's take a look here with the um, third point. We come to that of scriptural uh, evidences. Listen, both cannot be true. They can't. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding. People say, well, you had these different councils. You had the Council of Trent, the Council of Nicaea. You had these, all these different people coming together determining which books went into the New Testament. That's not true. They didn't determine. They verified. They came together saying, do we really have the right books? And as they examined them, they said, yep. When a new one would surface, such as a Gnostic gospel, they'd say, are we sure we have the right story? They'd examine it and they'd say, yep. And so for people to mistakenly say that it wasn't until around 400 or 300 A.D. that people said this is what, and they chose which books. No, it wasn't some sort of draft pick, no. The early church fathers from the first century, the disciples of the disciples, they knew what was truth. And they examined anything else that came Against the truth. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is where you have in, uh, uh, in chapter 5 here, you have a, a list of the different um, things that we are to do, not do, so forth and so on. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, etc. Let's start in, in verse 16. Because I made a statement earlier and I want you to see what I mean by that. Verse 16 says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Notice these next two. Read, these, read verse 20 and 21 with me. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. The Apostle Paul, as well as the rest of the first century church, said for us to do this. Prove all of it. The skeptic will say that we take it blindly. Now, I'm not going to dismiss that there are some people who perhaps, you know, my dad said this is the Bible and that's good enough for me. Praise the Lord. But for some of us, and I was one of those, it wasn't good enough for me. So I read them, and I studied. I love reading the early church uh, historians. I love reading Eusebius. I love reading about some of these guys that, uh, that were there back in the 100s. And it's wonderful to read the Reformers. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> but I want to read the guys that were there at the beginning. I like picking up Tertullian and Tatian. I like picking up Tacitus, which was a Greek writer not even a Christian, improving some of the very things that I believe. I enjoy that. And so the question, why does it matter? Because, listen, the Bible contains the gospel. 
the good news of Jesus Christ and the way of salvation. Paul says it this way in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And I have to believe that if that's the truth, if that's honestly the case, and I came to a point in my early adulthood where I decided I'm not going to just, just believe whatever anybody tells me to do, to believe. I'm not just going to believe what they insist. I'm going to search it out. I'm going to find out the truth for myself. And everything that I come to, the more I search, the more I investigate, the more I, I listen, and the more I learn, the more I'm convinced that this is the way of salvation. Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. He is who he, who he was, was said to be in the book of the Gospels. He is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. And the more of the Gnostic Gospels I read, the more I realize why they're not there. Paul says this as far as salvation is concerned. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free nor male nor female. The Gospel of Thomas says for a woman to come to know salvation, she has to become a man. And, and they want me to include that? Oh, the gospel of Thomas. We got a new gospel. Really? It doesn't match. And so either we need to throw away what we do have and go with that one, or we need to realize it's a fake. The so-called gospel of Judas that Time Magazine and National Geographic like to throw around as, oh, you were told that Judas was the bad guy, but here's the truth. You're talking about a set of 52 documents against thousands. And this so-called gospel of Judas has Judas being in the inner circle and Jesus taking him off to the side and telling him, let me tell you the truth. The Bible lets us know that Judas was possessed by Satan. Not just a devil, the word is used, Satanos. Our gospel also says that he was a thief. He held the money bag and took what he wanted from it. Our Bible refers to him as a traitor. And when we compare whatever else is out there, with the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what his word teaches us, we understand why it's not there. Again, why does it matter? <laughs> You're faced with a choice. You are presented with the very truth of what the word of God has to say. And understanding... The four Gospels of the canon were never questioned. I think if you've got Polycarp and Irenaeus referring to the book that John wrote, we've got some validity there. The first four were never questioned, not even by people like Valentinius, who was, uh, who was labeled a heretic. He didn't even question the original four. And so let's just take those four and compare them with the rest. You're going to find really quickly. The truth is that we have the correct 27 books. We'll go into greater detail when we get into that in our next uh, uh, weekend coming up here.
But why does it matter? Because, beloved, Jesus Christ came. And He came for a reason. He came so that you could know Him. And He is not so elusive that you have to have these hidden messages or secret meetings behind rooms and these these secret organizations coming along and whatever it may be. God is not so secretive. God wanted you to know Him and He did so by clothing Himself in flesh. He stepped out onto the scene and said, This is God. And he taught his disciples everything they could handle. And they wrote it down so that you could know him. It's found in the pages of these 66 books. I have no doubt from the beginning to the end. And I did one, Pastor, I had someone challenge me on that because my Bible had notes, had reference, had, uh, had uh, uh, concordance in the back and had uh, uh, little study notes and said, so you believe every bit of it's true? So I got me one without a concordance and without study notes. Yeah, I believe it's true from cover to cover. I don't think anything's missing. I don't think anything's been added. I believe we have the absolute closest thing within a 90, over 99% accuracy of the original that can show to a man the way of salvation, that can show to you today how you can know God. It's important. There may be some here today saying, Preacher, I've always wondered about that and that's the only thing that's really keeping me from a relationship with Him. I hope I have answered more questions than caused. But if you have more questions, please come when we do this deeper study, longer study. But maybe you're here and you'd say, Pastor, I'm tired of waiting. The God of this book is who I want to be God in my life. If that's you, there are people here who would love to take this book and show you how you can know Him. It's found in this book. You come up front and somebody just gives you their own words, I would say be suspect. But here... We give you the only thing worth having. His word. Not our own. Father, we ask you, Lord, that you would watch over the truth as you have done for so many years. And Father, I believe in a God that's able to create. I believe in a God that's able to redeem I believe in a God that's able to repair so how can I not believe in a God who's able to protect his word and so father what I ask Lord is that you would just simply watch over the truth as it enters our heart father we are presented today with a decision to make 
we're presented, Father, with the decision to accept it or to reject it. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would burden the hearts of the hearers today, Lord. That as we come to know this truth, we would understand that there is no middle ground. We either accept it or we reject you. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us with this. Father, that you would call the one trying to find the information, trying to find the answer. Woo them unto yourself, understanding that no man comes except you do draw them. But as they are being drawn, help them to see that. Father, they would yield to you and not waste away the days of grace. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.